Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Bob Krimmer. Uh, Gordon Thompson. Laura Bonarico. Maya Bialik. Michael Brainerd. Yeah, more. Joan Van Hart. Gloria Loring. Peggy Scott Adams. Lacey J. Dalton. Nia Peoples. Anna Aggie. Grail Andrews. Claire Massey from Tammy Show. Courtney. And this is Nellie from One Tree Hill West.net. Nicholas Walker. Damon L. Jacobs. Louise Schaefer. Michael Burnham. Alita Adams. Carney Pasolacqua-Hayman, otherwise known as Marlena Delacroix. Michael Fairman from MichaelFairmanSoaps.com. Brenda Russell. Beth Maitland. Joel Brooks. Harry Garber. Taylor Dane. Lynn Herring. Nicholas Rodriguez. Pamela K. Long. Linda Dano. Brett Claywell. Eileen Kristen. Jessica Tuck. Linda Etter. Gail Brown. Dave Romero. Curtis Steigers. Anthony Langford. Eric Martin. And we're live and kicking. I'm Brandon's Buzz. 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 Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It's Tuesday, January 26, 2010. 10 p.m. in the east, 7 p.m. back west. 9 p.m. here in Texas, and this is a thrilling night for me. Uh, you know, I know I'm a couple of weeks late in this, and I'll explain why in just a moment, but I am finally celebrating the one-year anniversary of Brandon's Buzz, which premiered on the evening of Wednesday, January 14, 2009. My guest that night was former One Life to Live star Robert Krimmer, and that poor man must have been mortified at what he had gotten himself into. I was nervous as all hell. I was stuttering. I was talking fast. I was tripping over my words. I clearly had no clue in the world what I was doing. And he was extremely patient with me and answered my questions with the grace and ease of a true pro. Uh, Some 50 episodes later, Brandon's Buzz is still here, still going strong, and I'm thrilled to report that the audience, which listens faithfully to my sometimes coherent rambling, is literally expanding by the day. Uh, You know, I tried like hell to get this show posted on the 14th so that I could mark this anniversary on its true day, But truth be told, I was on a plane to Los Angeles that very evening, and I was swamped with a day job and real-world responsibilities in the days leading up to the 14th uh, of this month. And I didn't want to just half-ass this commemoration and just throw something up on the website just for the sake of having something up. So please forgive the tardiness. Even though I'm you know, handing this in a couple weeks past the due date, I still hope you'll enjoy this celebration of the greatest, most nerve-wracking, most incredible year of my life. Uh, in honor of this event, I've gone back through the Brandon's Buzz archives and pulled a handful of highlights from the past 50 episodes of this program. Recollections, remembrances from the actors, the artists, the musicians, the writers, from the brilliant, beautiful folks who have made this show so much more than I could have ever dreamed uh, when I originally conceived the idea. You know, I, I can't even begin to tell you what it has meant to me to have had this forum in which to grill my favorite entertainers about their favorite moments and memories. And instead of trying to anyway, I'm simply going to show you. So without further ado, I give you Brandon's Buzz's Greatest Hits, Volume 1. You know, one of the great thrills of my life took place one year ago, last January, when I got an opportunity to have an engrossing, career-encompassing chat with the great actor Gordon Thompson, who rose to fame as a member of the Dynasty Ensemble in the 80s and as that erudite rascal Mason Capwell on Santa Barbara in the 90s. It was the second episode of my show, and if you listen, you can tell I'm nervous as hell because, I, as I said a while ago, I had utterly no idea what the hell I was doing back then, 
and I, you know, I had admired this great man's work for practically my entire life, and it was just a great thrill to, you know, bring him to this show and to have him kind of put up with me for two hours. I mean, we talked for two uh, a marathon two-hour session, and it was a really amazing conversation. And if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to go back to the January 2009 archives and pull it up. Uh, one of my favorite moments of that conversation was when Gordon waxed nostalgic about working with screen legend Charlton Heston on The Colbys, an ill-fated Dynasty spinoff. We did a crossover. I did, I think, two or three Colbys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think several of you did guest shots over there. Just to, I think most of us did. Yeah. And did you do that with good spirits, or were you kind of... Oh, I loved it. I mean, first of all, I got to work with Barbara Stanwyck. Oh, yes. And Charlton Heston. Yes. Wow. Um, the world's greatest bad actor. <laughs> you have to, if you, if you think, uh, no, I mean, took himself so seriously. We all have sets of chairs on the set with their names on them. Well, Chuck, I used to call him Chuckles, not to his face, but, yeah, never, but Chuckles, <laughs> is what I call him personally and privately, um, had his Moses chair from Ten Commandments. Big oak leather motherfucker. <laughs> that was Charlton's set chair. And I remember once uh, a scene I had with John James in the library on the Colby set. Um, it was a scene, and after our scene, Chuckles had a scene to do on the same set. And um, JJ and I had a huge fight because Fallon had had a dream that she had been raped by her brother, me. Emma Sands told John James, in character, that she'd been raped by her brother. And he tries to beat the shit out of me, and we have a big, fat yelling match. <laughs> well, Chuckles heard the last take, obviously, because he'd be behind the flat when he'd go on to rehearse. And he said to me, when I passed by, we had met. Yes, when in doubt, we all shout, don't we? <laughs> I thought, you pompous cock. <laughs> Do you read the script? <laughs> and I, I had not seen it at that time, but I recommend you see a movie that he made with Jamil called The Greatest Show on Earth, I think. Oh, okay. Um, he plays the circus <laughs> manager, and he wears an, an Aussie outland, outback hat, you know, the kind of with the brim curled up on one side. And, um, uh-huh. and you watch very carefully. He actually chucks himself on the chin. He sort of, you know, the way you do that something under somebody's chin, you go a little yep. punch, you go, ooh. Uh-huh. He does that to himself. <laughs> please watch. Please tape it. Please put it on a reel for yourself. It is the single silliest piece of acting I've ever seen in my life. How great. I'll tell you something. If you were alive and cognizant in the 80s, you know Terry Garber's name and visage. She was a sensation on the North and South miniseries and on Dynasty and she came to Santa Barbara with great fanfare in the early 90s to more or less replace the insanely popular Marcy Walker as the object of A. Martinez's affection and love. Too bad, as Terry revealed during a June appearance on this show, that didn't quite work out the way it was supposed to. Santa Barbara is a bit of a blur for me, I have to, I have to admit, because... Because I came into a situation where everyone was, you know, Cruz and Eden. They were Cruz exactly. and Eden lovers. Exactly. And then Eden 
she left. She wanted to leave. Marcy Walker wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. I didn't push her out. And when I came <laughs> on, it was like, it was hatred. It was, I mean, people just hated me. I got horrible mail, death threats. Um, it was really, it was a blur. And, and the character was not fully developed. And sure. they just, it wasn't a good thing. And there was an it, there was an insane amount of turnover behind the scenes and uh, a, a ton of executive instability. I mean, you must have kind of knew early on that that part really wasn't going to work out for you in the long run. You know, I had no idea. If you sort of learn that if your character doesn't involve itself with more than one person, you're not going to last. So my character, they just kept my character with A. Martinez for the longest time, and I thought, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's fantastic working with him because I, mm-hmm. I think he's genius. Um, but when they don't put you with anybody else, you have no family, you have nothing else, there's no reason to keep you on there. Towards the end, they did have me with a couple of the other, you know, younger cast, and that was really fun, and I was so thankful for that. Mm-hmm. But, no, I, I knew it wouldn't last. Well, and the awful thing that they did was they brought you on immediately after Marcy left. I mean, they gave was, the no, audience... There not even a time lapse. Her body was still warm, and I was moving in on it, you know. And, uh, yeah, boy, the mail. When I think I mean, about the mail that I sure. got. Sure. You know, the audience will forgive you anything if you just give them time to adjust. If you give them time. You think, I don't know, they just loved that couple so much. I don't think anybody could really have come in and, and warmed their hearts. <laughs> Plus, it was a strange story where... She was pretending to be your character at the very end of her run, and it was just—it was all very strange and kind of uh, unfocused. Right. Yeah, it was. They just—she just—she wanted to leave, so they had to quickly figure out how to do it. Nowadays, he is a world-renowned landscape designer, but once upon a time, the dashing Nicholas Walker was a much-respected soap star who took his craft incredibly seriously. And as he discussed when he was my guest last April. He was stunned to realize that wasn't always the case with his co-stars. You know, you mentioned working with, with John Conboy, who was, who was notoriously a tough producer, but you also worked with Paul Roush on two shows, and uh, he's got a pretty strong reputation as well as, as being tough to work for. But, 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 look, uh, but look at those producers and how many Emmys they have garnered. I, as having my own business, I am a slave driver too. And to get quality, to maintain quality, and to have a commitment to excellence, you know what? Great school. And I'm grateful. I never thought that John or Paul were unreasonable. They had high standards. They had professional standards. And they demanded that everybody met it. And you know what? I love that. When I have a producer who comes and whispers me in the ear and says, listen, take Gabrielle and make her your woman, you go, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's a pretty strong direction, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Or he'll say, I don't care about the censors. You want this woman like you've never wanted a, a woman. So, you know, I go, thank you. That was clear. <laughs> Same thing with John, where he'll say, you know, y- you want you want to obliterate this person. <laughs> and that's that's all he would say. Yeah. Or 
he would say, handle her. Physically handle her. And I go, got it. (laughs) They were strong directors. They had strong points of views. And they were strong communicators of their strong points of views. And that's why their shows stood out. And I never felt that they were like, understand, you know, from the theater, you can't be half memorized. You've got to be memorized. You can't be half prepared. You can't have blocking sort of half memorized. You've got to come ready to rock and roll. Absolutely. And, you know, don't, don't you find it liberating when you do know the material inside out? I mean, doesn't Absolutely. that, doesn't that really open you up? You got it, and that's where the magic happens. Then you're not struggling to remember the lines. You're not craning your neck. You know, everybody says, how unfair of John Conboy to take the cue cards off set. (laughs) I loved it, because guess what? When you were in the scene, you You were in the scene. You bet. And you didn't deal with an actor when the camera was off of him or her craning their necks to read the (laughs) lines. And I was like... That's what threw me in the doctors, you know. And there is a technique and an artistry to that, that there were some very fine actors who would do, you know, whole scenes who have gotten Emmys, and we would use the joke and call them reading for dollars. <laughs> they would just sit there and read for dollars. And then you go, wow. And they've kind of developed this zone look where they wouldn't look at you, they wouldn't look at the cue card, they would be in the zone somewhere, and everybody said, oh, that's pretty interesting. What is he doing? And all he's doing is reading for dollars. <laughs> so, you know what? Good for them, but that's not where I come from. I come from where I want to be in that magic envelope where the lines are in our bodies, in ourselves, in our emotions, in our breath, and we go for it. And it's like catching the wave. It's like surfing. You know, I've never surfed a real wave, but I've certainly surfed many emotional waves. And sometimes when you're on that wave and it carries you through, there's no better feeling. I'll tell you something. Every One Life to Live fan worth his or her salt remembers the amazing work Jessica Tuck did as Megan Gordon Harrison on that show in the late 80s and early 90s. And when Jessica was on this show last October, she discussed how she nabbed that role and how she enjoyed working with her brilliant co-stars and in this clip, how she came to the tough decision to leave the show at the height of her incredible popularity. What brought you to the decision to leave One Life to Live? I mean, uh, well, my contract was up. I mean, okay. quite literally, my my contract was up. You know, and so I think that that's kind of like a birthday. Everybody reevaluates themselves every sure. year, or at least I do. I don't want to impose that on anyone else, but um, I think. My contract was coming up, and I had to decide well, what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to ask you know, to renegotiate and stay or, or to move on. And I think um, – and I actually gave an extra six months. I, I stayed an extra six months, and, um, and then I just was really – I just was – I was curious, you know, curiosity. I, this is just the way that I am. I get curious about things. And I was courageous, a lot more honestly courageous back then than I am now. You know, like I, if if it were now, I don't think I would have the the guts to to leave. Wow. Um, I mean, I'm twice as old as I was back then. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, when you're young and, and I wasn't married, I didn't have a boyfriend, I didn't have, you know, pretty much any overhead, now is the time to leap and, and to try and, and to try something else. Um, you know, that said, obviously, I've been back quite a few times mm-hmm. for, you know, an episode here or there or something. I mean, I love One Life to Live, um, and I, I love going back to visit. Uh, so it's not – I didn't leave because I didn't love it. I, I left because I just thought I should I should challenge myself more than anything. Wow. How vehemently did, did Michael Malone and Linda Gottlieb try to talk you out of it? Um, did, they, did they try to talk you out well, of it? Well, I will tell you this. I actually I had to fight for my life with Linda Gottlieb. I mean, at one point, she wasn't sure that there was this odd period of time when <clears throat> Joe Lando left and... Um, the show was still on the air. I, I can't remember exactly what the thing was. And there was sort of like a, a dip in what they were doing with Megan. They didn't quite know what to do with Megan, my character. And um, I, I'm not going to say almost got written off the show, but almost. I mean, I literally had to sort of convince uh, Linda Gottlieb that I was worth keeping on. So bizarrely enough, I almost bit the dust before the whole sort of Megan's death thing came around. Because she came on, because Linda Gottlieb came on and was doing a lot of house cleaning. Like, she mm-hmm. really wanted to change things. I mean, I think, of all the producers, I think, you know, in the end she did a, a great job. And I left. I wasn't there under her for that long. But she made a lot of changes. When oh, you know, they, she, they, you know, they came blazing onto this show determined to craft an entire new paradigm for it. I mean, Well, exactly. And I have to tell you, that was crazy. That was a really difficult time for a lot of us. And I also think... I mean, I don't know, and again, I'm speaking without knowing all the details or completely knowledgeably, which is probably a dangerous place to speak from, but oh well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much she had worked in daytime before. The daytime audience is very different. People are used to their people, you know? You I mean, like, you, you, you can't just obliterate the Buchanan. You, 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 can't, you can't just switch things around so much. People have gotten comfortable with people. Uh-huh. We were sort of in shock. I mean, literally, we went in shock. Sometimes I I, I think people come with the best intentions, but they have to consider their audience. They have to consider the medium. And I I was sort of surprised at some of the things that were going down. Now, honestly, I would have respected her decision if it was time to let me go, been time to let me go. But um, I, I think I wasn't the only one that was a little shocked that she was questioning whether to keep me or not. And then... All of a sudden, they're like, "Oh, let's do this," and then you know they came up with a with you know Megan's death and all that Absolutely. stuff, and then things changed. But that was, if you want to talk about a tricky time, that <laughs> was a tricky time. That was definitely a tricky time. Were you were you absolutely flabbergasted by the promotional blitzkrieg that they staged for what they daringly called Shahrazad Week during the, during the week that Megan passed away? I mean, were you just you were on every talk show, you were on you were in every magazine. It was crazy. The the uh, the promotion they were able to get for that. It was, and again, I think part of it was, I don't think they would be able to do that today, and it, and I'm certainly not giving myself credit for that. I'm giving the 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 place that soaps had in the on the airwaves. You know, there was a lot less uh, content out there, and soaps had a, soaps had a big audience. Oh, sure, so, sure. You know, it's like I remember when Luke and Laura, and it certainly wasn't as big as the Luke and Laura fury. I mean, I remember Luke and Laura being on like the 
cover of Time magazine, you know, when they did the Luke and Laura story, right? Weren't they on, like, Absolutely they were, absolutely. And, and Newsweek. Like, and Newsweek, right. I mean, so, like, you know, think about Newsblitz. I mean, that was just crazy. And and they did a lot with Megan, too, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, they had article in the New York Times. and I mean, definitely. I, I will say that I am not a big one. I, I I got a bunch of wigs, and I used to... I used to wear wigs when I left the show. Like, I would disguise myself. I was a little freaked out by the um, all the attention. Seriously, it, I am a real people person. I love to sort of immerse myself into communities and get to know people and um, hear their stories. Uh, and if someone recognizes you, it changes the way they connect with you. I mean, all of a sudden... With that recognition comes all sorts of assumptions about you, all sorts of projections. Sure. And it's really hard to connect. And that's not to say that I didn't feel very lucky to have all of that publicity and that the storyline did so well. I mean, I honestly, I, I you know, I am very thankful for that. But I think that the loss of one's anonymity is huge. I mean, it's really huge. It's one of the things, <laughs> this is going to sound odd, but, you know, I'm sort of, happy that I never became some big, huge star because I am really thankful that I can walk my daughter to school every day and not worry about people following me. I mean, I feel, and I know there's a trade-off, but I can't imagine being someone that is so high in profile that they literally can't even walk their child to school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or they could, but it's certainly not without an enormous amount of fanfare. Um I feel like I sort of talked off. I'm not quite sure how I got to this. Oh, I know. You were asking about the publicity. Uh, it, it, it was fantastic, and it was frightening. It was frightening. I mean, I there were people that came up to me in the street when Megan was dying, and they'd say, Megan, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're sick, because, you know, it was winter at the time. Get back inside. And I was like, uh-huh. no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. I'm Jessica. And, 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 you know, and I would do it sincerely. I, wasn't, I didn't have any judgment about it. It's just that people get very wrapped up, and, 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 and look, I have my television shows that I watch, and I am really wrapped up in them, too, and I think if I were to see one of the characters outside, I uh-huh. would have a moment of like, <gasps> and if I were to see the character every single day, I mean, you know, it's not just once a week, it's every single sure. day. For an hour. Be, for an hour, yeah. and, you know, we do everything with them, right? We mm-hmm. change our clothes and eat our breakfast. I mean, you know, it's not like we're, we do everything with them, so... Of course, that's who you think the person is. And quite frankly, we do sort of meld into our soap characters a tiny bit. They they become more and more like us because if you're living it 24 hours a day, you spend more time being your character than you don't. It's sort of hard to figure out who you are in the end. You know, that that was odd. I, I actually got sent a book by a woman, like this amazing woman who wrote a book on lupus. She was um, not a doctor, but a, a some kind of, um, in the medical profession. And she'd written a book on lupus, and she'd written a note in it saying, Dear Jessica, I hope this will help you in coping with your illness. Oh, my uh, God. You know, and, and, I, and I have to say, she wrote it to Jessica, so she was aware that I was Jessica, not Megan, uh-huh. but still, you know, sort of confused the whole thing. And that happens. Poor Andrea, Ev- I think it was Andrea Evans. It was either Andrea Evans or Fiona Hutchinson, one of the two, I think it was Andrea, 
like a fan. Oh sure, she had a she had a stalker that was that was stalking her at the studio. Yeah, and somebody else cut her hair because they were angry at the way she was. You know, everyone's always getting angry at you. I got everyone got so mad at me when I dumped you know quote unquote Max James Five. Like, what are you doing dumping? Hey, you know, I actually have a real boyfriend in real life. Um, and again, love the fans. So appreciate their support. And I count myself amongst the people who blur the line sometimes, you know, uh-huh. get so involved in characters. But that, you know, it, it does mean that off screen, you carry your on screen persona yep. with you. You can't help it. And yep. that influences how people interact with you. And you lose that sort of. Um, level playing ground that's so nice to meet somebody. You know, it's so nice to meet when you both come without expectations of uh-huh. another. I mean, we all come with expectations. The minute you see someone, you decide things about them. But I mean, you know, in a bigger way than you're a celebrity. I'll tell you something. One of the great soap debuts this past year was made by a terrific fellow Texan by the name of Nicholas Rodriguez, who blew onto One Life to Live last summer and made an instant impression as Nick Chavez the would-be interloper in the show's red-hot love story between Kyle and Oliver. When Nicholas was here in September, he discussed his auspicious first day on set at One Life, which included him having to strip all the way down to the buff. So talk about stripping down to the buff on your second episode. That was quite a character introduction. Oh, yeah, tell me about it. It was an introduction in so many ways, you know? It was my first, it was my second episode, but it was my first day on set. How was that conveyed to you in the script? Well, you know, that, it's interesting because it, it wasn't exactly clear. I mean, it, it definitely said that, you know, I was, we were in the locker room and that I was changing clothes. But, you know, it wasn't aware, I wasn't aware, you know, am I changing a shirt or what's going to be on camera? And, you know, because it wasn't a lot of dialogue in between, you know, that I had to be undressed. But it's when I got to the set and, you know, they showed me where my towel was and then wardrobe brought in, um, it was my first day to meet the wardrobe people too, and they brought in underwear options for me to try on. So never have in my life have I had an underwear fitting. Uh, so I was like, oh. So I go to do the rehearsal, which lasted all of, you know, ten minutes. And nobody mentions anything about how far that they want me to get undressed. They just say, you know, you go over here, you're changing, 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 look in this camera, turn to Oliver, and then we're done. And then so we never really rehearsed it. And so we just you know, did it, and I turned to Scott Evans, and I said, I'm just going to go for this. I hope it's okay. Mind you, it's the first day I've met him as well. Wow. And so we just did it, and I guess the first take, you know, I, I just tried something out, and it was I was more nervous about getting the lines in on camera and getting the clothes off in time than I was about actually being naked because it was just so much to think about. And, you know, the next thing I know, I'm taking my underwear off in front of Scott Evans, and he's bright red. And... uh <laughs> You know, of course, they yell cut. Then that's when it all sinks in, is when they yell cut. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm standing here naked in front of a room full of people. And uh, somebody runs over and brings me a towel. And I'm standing there, like, totally awkward. And I was like, well, hi, nice to meet you all, you know. And, yeah, one of the stage managers, Al, he was like, welcome to daytime, Nicholas. Welcome to daytime, you know. So it was a really good time, you know. We all had a, you know, it was incredibly respectful. And we just kind of just jumped in there and do it, you know. Nicholas's co-star on One Life is a fantastic actor by the name of Brett Claywell, whom I was fortunate enough to lure here to Brandon's Buzz on a pair of occasions this year. During his October appearance on this show, he went in-depth about his character Kyle's feelings 
for the two men vying for his attention. You know, I had, I had your co-star Nicholas on my show a couple weeks ago, and I've reached out to Scott, so stay tuned on that. But in building your characterization for Kyle, ha- have you spoken with them at, at any length about their real-life experiences as out gay men? Not really, because Kyle hasn't had really any questions about being out. Um, he hasn't had he hasn't had to show any of his transition. So I, I looked at it like Kyle is just as comfortable being homosexual as as Brett is being heterosexual. Um, so there wasn't really wasn't really any need for uh, for personal campfire stories um, between us. But <laughs> but I I. I I think it's interesting Scott's performance that he he's had to go over the last few weeks with his coming out because his mother is so supportive of him and so loving and so wonderful that I think that had to be a a very interesting mm-hmm. it's been a it's been a very interesting role for Scott to play to be a closeted you know gay man because I don't think he ever really was you know I I don't think he ever really had that really strong extended experience so you know that was that was interesting to watch was his performance of that almost as much a stretch as as mine not quite but <laughs> that boy that boy's a fabulous crier yes he's he's got plenty of tears in those eyes <laughs> <laughs> to, to my eye you've done a brilliant job of building two completely unique grooves and i i don't know chemistries with your two co-stars Nicholas and Scott you know with Scott you're the confident one and with Nick you're a little bit more reserved and even a bit shy and i'm wondering if that was if that was conveyed to you in a script along the way, or if that was a conscious decision on your part to to, to put Kyle in in each of those places. No, it wasn't scripted that way at all. Um, I don't know. Maybe they do suggest things, and I just don't see them. But I feel like they give very little guidance in terms of uh, in terms of character uh, points. You know, I just kind of develop it on our own. Like everything's really the dialogue there, but you know, I can I can say a sentence a thousand different ways. So absolutely. It's really on us to to make these choices, and I just, you know, I can relate to the experiences in my life and where you you're with somebody and they, this is this is a this is the trick. Even people I've dated for a long extended amount of time, sometimes you begin a relationship with them, and you're just coming out of somebody else, as something else. You're transitioning, so you're you're still torn in your heart, but you really want to be with this person, but you don't want them to know it. Okay, so try playing torn that you don't really want you 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 want like you still love somebody else you want to be with this person but you don't want them to see it but then the audience has to see it. Okay, uh-huh. so that's that's been the trick. So I've been trying my best to 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 show the the turmoil of what's going inside of Kyle even though I can't let Nick see it I need to let the audience see it and I guess that's how it comes out. I mean it's definitely there's a there's a shyness there. I believe it's more like a hesitation, more reserved. Maybe some of um, maybe some of Kyle's wonderful kind of charm and and life and energy is kind of subdued a little bit when he's with um, Nick because he's he's having to hold back so much. Maybe part of that one, the wonderful side of Kyle, has to be held back also. I think that's probably what it is. Kyle, a little bit intimidated by Nick. Kyle could definitely be intimidated by Nick. I mean, Kyle's the like, hey, I'm, you know, I got no problems with my sexuality, but here comes a guy who doesn't just not have problems with it. He's uh-huh. got a megaphone <laughs> <laughs> hung around his neck with a lanyard. It's like he has it on him at all times. 
so I don't know. I mean, that's like, you know, is uh, I I wouldn't even know how to how to say that. It's like, uh, is is Vince Vaughn intimidated by Will Ferrell? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's like, wow, he's louder than me. Um, I think there's less intimidation. I think there's just more pressure. You know, Nick Nick is very strongly motivated the things that he wants, and Kyle's one of the things that he wants. And when somebody wants something really bad and that thing is kind of hesitant, you know, it creates tension. And I just believe that that's, things can start happening really fast in Landview and and things change and transition very quickly. So I think, I think Kyle's just more shell-shocked than anything. <laughs> Are you amazed that there's a growing Kyle-Nick contingent to go alongside the massive fan base that, that Kyle and Oliver claim? Uh, no, because not every relationship is Kyle and Oliver. You know, there's a lot of people that can relate to Nick and Kyle. Uh-huh. You know, there, there's it, people are going to relate to the to the things that you know that they they find most in common with their life, I would think, and things that resonate with them because they've been there. And so there's there's definitely there's a there's a contingent that I'm sure is very proud of of two gay men that are proud to be out and proud of of you know, proud of their their life, and I think that probably resonates with a lot of people just as equally as unrequited love. So last summer, last June to be to be uh, exact, I had a very engrossing conversation about the craft of acting with a pair of great thespians, Emmy winner Beth Maitland from The Young and the Restless, and esteemed character actor Joel Brooks, who is probably best known for his work on the sitcom My Sister Sam in the late 80s. Joel's co-star on My Sister Sam was a talented young actress by the name of Rebecca Schaefer, who was tragically shot by an obsessed fan just as her star was on the rise. And I asked Joel to talk about that experience and to expand on the perils of fame for young actors. Forgive me for bringing up an uncomfortable subject, Joel, but I, you know, I know that My Sister Sam had already wrapped production by that point. But with your proximity to Rebecca Schaefer in the late 80s, you're in a pretty unique position to counsel young actors today on the dark side of fame. And in this age of Facebook and MySpace and Twitter and all these blogs and things, where we all seem pretty proud of the fact that we know a little too much about each other, do you ever give yourself a moment in class or, or you know, in coaching young actors to kind of talk about stuff like that that's, that kind of goes beyond the mere mechanics of acting? Of course. But um, we don't really bring that up in class. It's It's mostly... Whenever I coach someone, uh, a young actress, especially young actors, are not necessarily as, they're not really targeted that much. But young actresses are. And I, every single time I work with a young actress, I actually make a very sobering statement and tell them the story and try to scare them into taking more care than Rebecca did. Although, I must say, there was no way of her knowing. It was somebody at the door, and they were delivering a script, and um, it's a terrible thing, actually. It's a terrible thing, but, you know, I can only, it's like, you know, scared straight. I can only do, but I do tell mostly the young um, women. um, Now, in addition to that... In, in addition to that, though, we do we don't talk about that specific subject or story in our in our in class, but in preparing for 
in talking to people about what they put on their resumes and what information they exchange. Oh, yeah, we do do that, yeah. Yeah, we, we cover that very specifically, and we yeah. encourage them to get to have a website and have referrals to the website instead of to a home address. They don't ever give out their, their home telephone number as a contact. They have to have – they might uh, perhaps do a cell phone or they might have a service – um, if they, if, if a contact direct has to occur, if they don't have an agent or in between agents at the time or something, they need to find some other way that it can't be tra- traced back to their home address. We just, we do discuss with them that um, the only time you give out personal information is after you've booked the job and the wardrobe department has to call you at home to set up your wardrobe fitting or or that to deliver a script. And they don't even do that anymore. They don't deliver scripts. They email you files. All email, sure. yeah. Right. So we we really encourage as much information electronically tr- transferred as possible. That you fax things. That you you know if they have changes, they fax them or email them to you. And to to sort of reduce that that direct contact as much as possible. On the other hand, we also encourage good manners and realizing that the whole the whole basis of a career is on uh, good impression, word of mouth, good manners good skills, professionalism. So you bring a thank you note. After you've booked a job or something, you send a thank you note to the casting director. You send a thank you note to the director. You don't be imposing. You don't be, you don't be um, you're like stalkers, but you do be professional and appropriate and, re- and realize that all of this is based on personal relationships. If you were great at your job and, and made a good impression because you were easy to work with, you knew your lines, you hit your marks, you took direction well, they're going to want to use you in the future. If you change agents or move out of town and they can't find you, there's no way that they can keep contact with you and you'll never get another job. On the other hand, a lot of the things that go on throughout a long-term career are based on friendships that you, that you develop in acting class, with the casting assistant who next next year is the head of the network in charge of casting, people move around throughout show business, and those relationships are what continue to make you work. So we need to be – Which is, uh, earlier on I said, you know, there are some things that you could do that you walk into a room and you could lose a job. And that that's sort of something else that happens in show business. If you are rude, if you are obnoxious, if you have any kind of attitude – when you walk into a room, it's what Beth was saying. If people have the idea that they want to work with you, they'll be inclined to hire you. If the, if you're giving attitude or uh, rude in any kind of way or sullen or anything else, there's 17 people behind you that can do the job. Why should they work with you? Last spring, I had the great honor of welcoming to Brandon's Buzz, in completely separate and unrelated conversations, a pair of musicians whose work I have greatly admired for a hundred years, and those two artists also share a unique connection amongst themselves, in that the fabulous performer Alita Adams is best known for her smash hit, Get Here, which was written some 25 years ago by a singer named Brenda Russell. Last May, Alita discussed the moment when she first heard and fell in love with Get Here. But I think get here. Wow. You know, you know, everybody remembers that song. How did that song first come into your life? I was in Scandinavia in 1988, um, which was the year that I recorded with Tears for Fears. And I left them and went directly on a piano bar tour of Scandinavia. And when I got to Oslo, Norway, uh, the song was playing in a shop, uh, Brenda Russell recording. Mm-hmm of Get Here was, was in a dress shop, you know, over the radio. 
playing. And I heard the song, and being familiar with her voice and her work, mm-hmm. I said, "Oh my gosh, this is new. This is great." Mm-hmm. And when I and and my boyfriend at the time, who is I'm now married to, John Kishan, sent me a, a a cassette of her album. And I listened to that song over and over, and when I got back to the States, we started performing it, and so that it had become mine by the time I had the opportunity to record my first record. Did you have an instant feeling that that would be your signature smash? I mean, did you just know? I knew. I knew. I don't know if Roland knew. Uh, I think he sort of had faith in that, but I definitely knew it It would be... Uh, if anything that I did was going to be a success, I felt that that would be it. Yeah. And even to this day, can you perform a show without singing that song? I mean, do you even dare try? Uh, uh, not my regular concerts, <laughs> I don't. I do other things where, you know, they're not necessarily asking me to sing that song. So sometimes it's not appropriate. But even in the – I have a uh, – I also do gospel shows and uh, I've visited some churches, and I've done concerts there where the, even the pastors will say, now look, you're going to have to sing Get Here. <laughs> and, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that because, of course, you know, the song can be personalized for any reason, including spiritual reasons. You know? Sure. So, so it's, uh, it's perfect that way, and it suits me well, and I love singing the song. And then in June, when Brenda was in my hot seat, I mentioned to her the fact that Olita had been here and recounted the story she had told, and Brenda hilariously corrected what she viewed as Olita's, shall we say, untruth. I tell you what, I had, I had uh, Olita Adams on this program last month. And she spoke of hearing your version of Get Here playing over the radio in a dress shop in Oslo, Norway. It was and actually Stockholm, Sweden. Easy to oh. mistake, but that's where it was. Stockholm. Okay. And which is I irony because I wrote the song in Stockholm. That's why I remember this. <laughs> I wrote the song in Stockholm, and she heard it for the first time in Stockholm. Wow. Okay. Star. Okay. And I'm going to have to write her and correct her then. <laughs> no, no. She probably, she probably said Stockholm. I can't imagine she said Oslo. Did she really say that? Yeah, she said Oslo, Norway. She said that she was she was on a tour of Scandinavia, and she walked into a dress shop in Oslo, and the song was playing over the radio. Either she forgot or she lied to me. <laughs> <laughs> I choose the thing she forgot. And anyway, she... I've been this story for a good 20 years. <laughs> I don't want to hear about no Oslo, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make well, it as good as well. <laughs> but uh, it was kind of magical. It was still Scandinavia, whatever. Um, yeah. It was an amazing coincidence, you know? Mm-hmm. And her version of that song was a gift from heaven. Oh, tell me about it. You know, that, that song became a hit during the first Gulf War, and even though it's... It's a very bittersweet, I mean, it's not a happy, happy, you know, sing-along song. It's a very bittersweet song. But it filled so many people with so much joy and so much hope at that time that it, it really was, as you say, it really was a blessing. I can't even tell you what an honor it was that people were calling up radio stations and dedicating this song to people in the Gulf. It was an amazing uh, phenomenon with uh, Alita singing it so beautifully. 
And I wanted to tell you that the first time I, that anyone ever heard this song performed, I sang it in a club here in Los Angeles. I was trying to get a record deal, one of the many times I've been out there <laughs> for a record deal. I said, okay, I think the best way to do it is just do a live show because people haven't seen me sing live enough, you know. Sure. So let me go and just put this show together and see how they react or respond to this new music. And one of the new songs I was singing was Get Here. I started singing Get Here, and these people started hollering at me from the audience, sing that song, girlfriend. <laughs> what? You know, they were just going off. And I thought, oh, my God, this is, they really love this song. And I was it just, I always knew there was, there was magic in this song just from that first night of performing it. I thought, oh, my God, this wow. is something special. I've never had this kind of reaction before, mm -hmm. you know. And... Um, it did help me get the record deal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, al along those lines, as a songwriter who is well known for performing her own material, uh, particularly at that time, uh, is it difficult for you to more or less, I don't know, it's it's a bad way to put it, but relinquish custody of your work to another artist in that way? And I ask that just because, you know, as a writer myself, I often wonder how, how novelists feel when screenwriters come in and, and adapt their material for the screen and find things in that material that the novelist may not even known was there. And so I'm just wondering what it's like for, for you as a singer and a songwriter kind of turning over your material to someone else. Well, there's, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting question you're asking because um, that night when I sang Get Here, uh, there's a lot of tears in the audience that night, and a, and a guy came up to me and he said, you know, I'm working with this new artist, and I'd really like to have that song for this new artist. And I was like, oh, he said, her name's Whitney Houston. <gasps> I said, oh, wow! Well, I never heard of her. No, wow. I never heard of her. And uh, I said, you know, I really need this song to help me get this record deal that I'm looking for. I, I mean, any other song, fine, but this one, I can't give it up. Just can't. <laughs> but as I grew as a writer and a performer, I realized you give up anything <laughs> because basically you can. You're the source. You can write another song. You know, you can write another good song. Yeah. And I'm not afraid to give songs up. Uh, you know, I was a little bit scared to let that one go, and it was probably right that I didn't, because then, you know, it, you know, songs have a life. Mm-hmm. And Olita was supposed to have that. Song. Oh, sure. It all worked out the way it was supposed to. Exactly, which most things do. You know, but uh, I much I grew up as a, as a creative person. I I thought, you know what, let it. Anyone recorded who wants to record it, you can write another song. Hello. Wow. <laughs> Go back to the well, you know. <laughs> so tell me the truth. Years later, when, when, when Whitney Houston became the biggest thing ever, did you kick yourself? Yes. <laughs> you did. I mean, the girl was killing 50 wow. records on the I Will Always Love You. I, yeah, I was I was hurting a little bit, but, you know, I knew deep in my heart that I did what was supposed to happen. No question about it. The way it went down. And, you know, I have no regrets. But it just hurt be a little because I love this woman's voice so much, Whitney. And uh, it, it would be such an honor to have her sing, you know, one of my songs. Sure. But who knows? You just never know. You just have to do what you think is going to I'll tell you, one of my absolute proudest moments in the course of putting this show together over the past year happened in September when on the eve 
of the final episode of Guiding Light, I was finally able to track down the great Pamela K. Long, whose seven years head writing that soap not only won her and her team a pair of Emmys and multiple nominations, but continued to be regarded as the most important period in that show's history. Uh, Pam and I talked for almost two hours, and I laughed myself silly throughout the entirety of the conversation. She is an utter riot, and if you haven't listened to the whole of that episode, you just have to trust me when I tell you that the whole damn thing is a greatest hit in and of itself. But one of my favorite parts of that chat was when Pam described in a very circuitous, very roundabout way her transition from Texas, the soap she started out acting on but ended up writing before its tragic cancellation uh, in 1982, to Guiding Light. Talk about moving from Texas to Guiding Light. Was it just a matter of, of you being in the Procter & Gamble family already? Um, well, you know, it was really my relationship with Gail because Gail Kobe, the producer on Texas, she loved stories and storytellers, and she she said she she called me Scheherazade. You know, she had always looked for, and that's what a great producer really does. They look for a writer and a storyteller. They look for a storyteller, and um, she she was willing to put up with me learning the ropes because I didn't know anything about any of it. Um, and I had Jeff Ryder who really helped me, you know, with that in terms of knowing just how how they're structured, you know, and, and all of that. But, but I, you know, I was a quick study, but the stories, you know, I could really spin all of the stories. And um, But I figured when it was, I mean, I had, you know, I was an actress on the show, and I was pregnant with my first child, and I can remember going out to dinner with Gail and her saying Rena was going to have a baby. And I'm like, no, no, I really don't see that, you know. I, I, really, I mean, she's the sexy woman on the show. I wouldn't have her. Ashley should be having a baby, you know, and do a triangle with that. And she said, well, no, I'm, I'm going to do it with Rena. And I said, no, 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 I really think it should be Ashley. And she said, well, I'm not. I'm going to do it with <laughs> Rena. And I said, well, you can't because Carla Borelli's not pregnant, but I am, <laughs> you know. And... uh which, of course, I was writing the show and pregnant with my first child and acting on it. I mean, it was ridiculous because it was like, and I was huge, too. I can remember the first time I ever knew Kim Zimmer, she was on The Doctors. Uh-huh. And I thought, that woman's even bigger than me, you know, because both of us were pregnant at the same time. And But I gained 50 pounds, and there I am, Fat Ashley on the show. And I can remember my, 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 my love interest, you know, TJ goes, I said, TJ... I'm, I can't, I can't be with you because I'm, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and he has to, is a, is a, who, as an actor, he'd never had to do anything so hard. He's surprised. <laughs> He's surprised. Oh, well, I, I'm, at least I gave him some words to cover. I must have known, but I just wanted to be blind to it because it meant I was going to go back to Justin. But it was like, I was, I was big as a house. I'm pregnant. Oh, <gasps> really? <laughs> So I wrote myself off the show, <laughs> went, you know, missing in a flood, and came back in time for Christmas with, you know, being carried in by an angel when Absolutely. CJ, my son, was three days old. So wow. I was back at work um, on the third day. Anyway, I haven't thought about this stuff in a long time. It, <laughs> it was kind of a wild time, but I figured that. You know, this was a fluke, and that when Texas was canceled, I would go back. I'd lose weight and go back out and 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 act again. Be an actress again, sure. I would go out and be an actress again. And Kobe was like, Gil Kobe was like, Why in the world would you do that? You know, you're not going to be 
you know, you're not going to be nice looking forever and you talk funny. What kind of roles are you going to get? She said, but a writer, you can be a writer forever. And that made some sense to me, and she was being offered guiding light, and boy, I mean, that was a war horse. That was just a warship, you know. It was, it had been around forever, and I thought, you know, I, I thought that Texas was just a special thing. I didn't know if I was a writer. I, I wouldn't stop using a pencil for the longest time because I thought I'm going to have to erase everything of this, you know. I remember it was a big deal when I started putting a pen to paper, you know, because you couldn't erase it. So, but anyway, she said, I'm, I'm, I don't want to go over there unless you're going with me. I want you to go with me. And I was like, well, okay. So I, I went over to Guiding Light. and um, What did you think of Guiding Light when you first got there? You know, my understanding was that after Doug Marlin left, the show was in pretty much a, sh- a complete shambles. I, you know, I don't know. I don't think I had enough experience to, 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 to know that, I mean, I knew that they weren't high in the ratings or anything like that, and, and um, but I... And you were used I, to that, being on Texas. I mean, you were used to that. I was used to that. Exactly right. Yeah. So I was prepared for that. That didn't Nothing phase me. Nothing new for me. you, yeah. Yeah, that didn't phase me. Yeah. I was just learning, you know, what, uh, what, you know, that you got graded every single week. You had a test, and people graded you on it. But um, and it was um, much harder than the GRE. I would, I would wager. Yeah, well, that was just over in one day and changed the course of my life, you know. Um, but you know, this was too. But you know, I, I, I took Jeff Ryder with me. He left NBC Network and, and, and went with me because I, I just I learned so much from him. And, and mainly we just argued all the time. I mean, I can remember being in a story meeting with him when he was the, the head of daytime at NBC, and he took off his shoe and threw it at me across the room at one point. <laughs> and, you know, but we were totally passionate about the characters, and they were real to us, and we would just fight over them. And, and um and, and I, I used to I used to say to Jeff, I don't know why you put up with me because the main thing that I would do is think, ah, I can't think of a thing. He go, well, what about this? And I go, no, 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 no. So I would disagree with Jeff, and then we would come up, you know, I'd come up with story, and he would, bless his heart, he would always get excited and, and support me, and then we'd go to Gail, and she would get excited about it, and then we'd go to the network, and they we had to we had to pull. You know, CBS kicking and screaming all the way to number one, which we were once. <laughs> Went up against G, you know, General Hospital when it had a 40 share. Yeah, which was the behemoth of daytime at that point. Oh, right? it was, was a behemoth, yeah, and and that, that was the show. That's, that that was the show, and that's who we were against. And um, but once again, not having experience, but having all I had was intuition. Um. But we we broke all the rules there, too, uh, because normally you would say, and even I would say this, you don't go on a show and get rid of half of the characters on it. Uh, But we did, and we did in the first six months. But we kept the strongest characters there, you know, the Bowers and and even in the Reardons. And... um, and we and we built on that and uh and just introduced great characters and then found these incredible actors to to play them and and then we just took off from there later on in that episode Pam also discussed her post guiding light life and career and among the things she talked about was her work with the legendary television executive Brandon Tartikoff creating and overseeing a mid 90s family drama on ABC entitled Second Noah then after that, I 
got to create finally um, my own a show. A terrific show called Second Noah. Second Noah on yeah. ABC. You know that was such a great original show, and it was it was. It was one of those family dramas very much in the same vein as something called Seventh Heaven, which would debut later that year and go on right. to a huge smash. You know, everybody knows that family shows like that take, a, take a, a long time to find their footing in the ratings. And, and it seemed like ABC was, was really going to stick with you guys and be patient and let you find your way. And then they got antsy and yanked it. No, it's one of those, it's one of those things where with Christy at CBS um, – you know, the the president of the network that bought the show left. <laughs> you know what I mean? And Peter Tortorici came in. And the same thing happened at um, at ABC. Uh, the show's picked up by one president, wow. and then a new president comes in. And they want their own they want to put their show. Stamp. So they want it, those shows that are just starting out. Those are the ones that they can yank and put on. And, and try to make and you know she it ended up that she was the flash in the pan, and it was Brandon Tartikoff's show, um, and I I can remember when I I mean he was such a legend and uh, did you love working with him? You know what I don't even know if I can talk about him without crying. <laughs> I miss him even today. He, he has such a love of television that it must have just been amazing to even be in his presence. I love it that you know that. He he loved yes. television. Yes. He loved it. I mean with And you could tell the way he programmed television that he loved television. Oh, he loved it. And he loved he loved writers and he loved actors and he loved but he and he loved Second Noah. And he would say to me, This is a tombstone show. This is a tombstone show, Pam. This is the show I want on my tombstone. Wow. Oh, he was so proud of it. And um um but I remember when I went in to pitch him, I had all these little pearls of mine, you know, these shows that I wanted to. And, you know, my agent, Sam Haskell, said, you're going to love him. He's going to love you. And you just tell him. And, and, and before I could even pitch him my pearls, he goes, there's something that's really been on my mind and on my heart. I want to I do a show about kids and animals, about adopted kids. And my heart just sank. I'm like, <laughs> kids and animals. What could be worse? You know, what could be worse? And, and of course, and talk about somebody who's, you know, you don't say no to. Absolutely. And, I, and in my heart, I went, oh, man, I'm dead. And my head's going up and down. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. And um, he was adopting a child. You know, after he had that horrible accident um, where his little girl had sustained damage and he almost died. They both almost died. And he was adopting, and he that was on his heart, you know. And um, that and the fact that he had a big, fat deal with Bush Gardens to do something in partnership. So it was, it was where the animals came in. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that shouldn't be too hard. And I remember going home and telling Steve, I'm never – because I was pitching all this kind of, like, edgy stuff. Uh-huh. You know, I, I I was getting pigeonholed as a family-type person. And, yes. you know, and, and it's like and my husband just looks at me, and he goes, well, Pam, look around at our life. What do you think our life is? I'm looking around at that point. We're, we're living in L.A., in town, and there's six dogs staring at me, you know? Like it was against the law what we had going on in our house. And and I'm like, oh. Anyway, and it was wonderful, and it was a wonderful show, and it was a huge mistake, and they should have never canceled it. And, oh. and, don't, you and, think, and don't you think that ABC right now would kill for the supposedly puny ratings that – you guys were bringing in for them on Saturday night. I mean, we we had moved to 
Thursday. I can't remember. I know at one point we were on opposite football, Monday Night Football. It was like, ooh. Uh, but um, I know that the ratings that we had the last week we were on, or even the week that they they said they canceled us, and they still had some on after that, uh-huh. um, was a 15, and I don't think they've ever had it since. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's, that's how it goes. And when you talk about regrets, I really wish I had fought harder, you know. I had a, you know, things are always moving so fast, and I, I knew that was a really special show. That was a really special show. No question about it. You know, that show introduced a, a lot of us to, a fresh-faced young actor by the name of James Marsden, whom I am man enough to admit to having a gigantic crush on. Oh, yeah. Who went on to have a fabulously successful film career. Who doesn't? <laughs> he... <laughs> Could you see instantly that he had stardust in his eyes? Oh, yeah. He... No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not a fool. I mean, he was like, he's just, he's just beautiful and a beautiful person, and he's so funny. See, that's a lot of things that you don't really get to see. Uh-huh. You know, it's how funny Jimmy is. Jimmy's really funny. And um, we were down, we were shooting that in Tampa, Florida. And while we were shooting the pilot, we were all at a restaurant. And um, he said something about being able to, that he loved singing. I'm like, singing? You know, I'm like, sing for me. And he, in the most beautiful, well, that was it. I mean, that was wow. it. I, I, I was like, I wanted him to sing every week, which I did. That's how he did the show. I mean, it was like Ricky Nelson. I mean, except he was even cuter. <laughs> and I was so in love with him. Wow. Oh, I just, I loved him. I loved him. I loved his character. And I loved Darby. <laughs> you know, like, here's your nightmare. You know, here, here's this beautiful boy. And then here's this trashy girl coming up in her trashy car, and it's like, there's your nightmare. <laughs> and she was hilarious, Joey, <laughs> Joey Adams. And um, it was a great, great cast. Loved them. It was Loved a great them. show. And, you know, it, like I said, it's one of those shows that very it, different. it takes forever to take hold, but once it does, you don't lose that audience ever. Oh, it was unique. It had such heart, and it had humor, and it was surprising, and there was a lyricism to it that um, my husband worked with me on that. He wrote some great shows, and um, it was great. It was a a family affair, you know. Plus, I mean, you're getting up. It was one of the things where even hardened crew, when that show was – you know, filming the last day, mm-hmm. they were in tears because they knew that they would never be. Those children were wonderful, you know. And Funny. to every day show up and, you know, well, we have to have the the baby, you know, the baby camel in the same scene with the baby zebra because they can't be separated. You know, they love each other. And then, you know, the spitting llama and the, I mean, it was just, it was just, it was just incredible. <laughs> yes. You know, it was. Elevated. Um, it was just one of those things that was a real affair of the heart, even though we had some fiery actors, you know. But, but you're it used was, to that. Um, yeah. You know. You know how to navigate that terrain. Well, once, yeah. Once you've done a daytime show, you can do anything. You can do anything. You know what? Everyone who worked on the classic soap Another World in any significant capacity always talks about what a family the show's cast was. 
and the great Cale Brown is certainly no exception to that rule. When he was my guest in November, he talked about the can-do spirit which pulsed through the fictional town of Bay City. Another world, did you have the foggiest clue when that show came into your life that it would end up dominating 13 years of your life when you took that part on? I had no idea what I was walking into, not a clue. And by the grace of God, I walked into the greatest group of people. You know, Anna Stewart, to work with her, like one of God's gifts, you know, I, I and just, we had, we still do. I mean, we're still great friends. She's just the most wonderful human to work with. It just took off uh, all on its own. I had no idea, you know, and I had no idea that, you know, about what I had no idea about any of it. I thought you were, I mean, I felt like after a while, I went from like working a day here and a day there uh-huh. to all of a sudden, you know, working all the time and doing appearances and stuff. And I thought that was normal. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't have any, if I had a day off, I thought they were firing me. <laughs> um, Plus, just just getting used to the mere grind of, of daytime. I mean, here you are doing a show a day. I used to go home at night and weep because they'd give me another script for the next day. <laughs> and I think, oh, my God. You know, I mean, in a, in a film, if you do a third of a page a day, that's yep. a lot. Uh-huh. In, a, in a sitcom, you get rehearsal. I mean, it's a half hour. It's 20-some-odd pages. You get rehearsal every day for a week, and then you go in and you get a couple of times. This, I mean, there were some days where Anna and I, when, it was, when we were at our top, our peak, sometimes we'd have 100 pages of dialogue a day. What happened was, is we were working such insane hours, they had money to burn, then we'd work until literally we had midnight mail, one of the directors. We didn't get out of there before midnight, and we started at 7 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, you'd start out, you'd meet the car at 6 o'clock. Um, so it was long days. We'd be there regularly till 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. One morning, we ended at 4, I went home and slept for one hour, came back, and I looked at the script, and it said, I, I hadn't even looked at it before, and, and, and I, I thought, oh, great, only ten scenes. And I read it once, and we taped it. And I thought, you know what? I was worried about remembering my lines, but it's the worry that pushed them right out of my head. It's amazing what your brain can do when you ask it. Absolutely. Uh, I get very adept. There were other people who actually had different techniques, uh, like writing it on um, their hand. <laughs> or... or or actually plates. Um, there, there was people at all kinds. Because, you know, after a while, when you're doing this day after day after day, your brain's going, wait a minute, didn't I just say that? Haven't I been here before? Um, it was, it's, it's a bizarre experience. And, and, and on folks, you, you probably did already say that, and you probably, you probably had already been there before. Well, you know what? I'll tell you, Brandon, the, the, the key is if you feel like that, you know, snap out of it because you've never been there before. Yeah. And, it, I mean, I always felt like if I'm – not interested, I will not be interesting. So I better be interested in what I'm doing every single day. Every, and my job is to make everything new, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, we all know what we're looking at. It's five days. Writing a show like that is so hard because you've got you've to fill an hour and not go anywhere, mm-hmm. right, until mm-hmm. Friday. It's, it's the hardest work I've ever done. I mean, believe me, there's no harder job the only people who've ever made fun of soap operas have never done one you bet i'll tell you flat out you betcha you know um and it, it helps if you're half out of your mind <laughs> you know because it works great um uh, you got to be able to like uh, you know you got to be able to sit and then you know pull it up really quick uh-huh you know soap actors work 
really hard. You know, you mentioned the long hours on Another World. I got a chance to talk to Judy Evans some time ago, and she said the exact same thing. She said the hours on Another World were twice as long as any other show she's ever done, and she wasn't quite sure why. It just it just worked that way for some reason. And, you know, she would talk about how sometimes they would start at 7 a.m. and not finish until 7 a.m. the next morning. And, and you know, That's right. We walked from Studio A, into, we had two <laughs> studios back then, into Studio B and start up the next show. <laughs> And that, crews that working around the clock, working on sets, and and yep. you know getting everything together, and it, it was it was amazing the the work you guys pulled off with with the uh, with the amount of money that you didn't have. Another world was kind of like, hey, I got a barn. Oh, I got a camera. Let's make a soap. <laughs> I mean, it was really it felt like that, but it was always about the work. Once you got down to the floor, you know, whatever personal whatever stuff was going on, and you know, it's, you're all like on that lifeboat together. I mean, there's no one, there's nothing else out in Brooklyn. I mean, trust me, you're underground. You go in when it's dark, you come out when it's dark. These, this is your family. On the floor, it was always about the work. I mean, that's the one thing that was uh, I remember being always able. I was able to rely on that, and we yeah. had a lot of fun on the floor because there's no prompters. So you go, you go skating. I get out there sometimes with Tommy Eplin, and it was like surfing. And you, you, you'd lose what the hell you were talking about. It would go off somewhere, and you'd skate around, and, and all of a sudden we wind back up on track, and we get done with that scene, and yes, we nailed it. And you knew there was a moment in time there where that scene, would, neither of us had a clue what what we were talking about. That fascinates me. What was it about that show that almost nobody had a bad working experience there? I mean, you hardly ever hear anyone who was on that show in any significant capacity talk about what a horrendous experience it was. I think that's because we were there for each other. And it, it comes from the top, for sure. But there was that element of, you know, the only time I ever really knew I was on TV is like when I'd be walking down a street and I'd see a, there'd be a, a, you know, a store window full of televisions and the show would be on. And I'd see myself <laughs> up there and I'd think, Oh, right. Other people look Yeah. <laughs> I mean, otherwise, you know, and there's something about New York where you're actors. There's not a lot of personalities going on there. Uh-huh. You know, you're really there for the work. And there was always this great work ethic at, at Another World where it was always about doing the best work. And so we'd help each other. There was, you know, it was, it was just like that. And I thought, you know, they were all like that. They're not. You have to know that whether you're talking about her best-selling books, her incredibly popular collections of home and fashion accessories for QVC, or her Emmy-winning two-plus decades' worth of work on daytime television, the name Linda Dano is synonymous with the word quality. She was on this show at the end of September of last year, and although she was here to promote her latest appearance on QVC, the topic of conversation inevitably swung around to her unforgettable run on Another World. You've said in the past that, that people expect you to have a, a very opulent wardrobe and I'm sure a very opulent home. Yes. When, when people walk into your home, what do they find? What do they see? Um, they see personal things. Uh, I, because I'm an accessory person, because I love accessories, uh, that's, what you, that's what I think you notice first. But you'll also notice that it's tranquil, that there's nothing... Um, Nothing jumps out at you. It's it's very peaceful. I think you probably would sense that about my houses, that they're peaceful. And um, and you like being there. I've never had anybody come in and not say, 
oh, it's nice here. Wow. It's really nice here. It's just, oh, I don't, they don't quite even understand it. It's just a kind of, it's a kind of warm, nice, comfortable, but beautiful feeling. I'm very understated. I dress the same way. I, 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 I really do love, I really do what, what I preach to others. <laughs> I really do simple clothes, and I try not to have a lot of them. When I left Another World, um, and Sean Dudley, who just, oh, my Sean, uh, Guiding Light ended. Yes, I was oh, going to ask you about that later. Makes me so, so sad. Anyway, it, uh, Sean so was in those days working in Another World, and, of course, did the one thing, as sweet as it was, oh, he gave me anything I wanted of Felicia Gallant, yeah. anything. And she had some wardrobe. <laughs> she and certainly I, did. I took home all of these clothes, which has been the bane of my existence ever since. <laughs> because no one should have that many clothes. <laughs> they really shouldn't. It, it's only confusing. Uh, unless you change clothes three times a day, what are you doing with all those clothes? And um, now, if it was accessories, that's a whole other animal. Did you get me. to keep the turbans also? I did not want those, Brandon. <laughs> I said no to those. Thank you. I did, however, take a couple of feather boas. Fantastic. I did. I, did. I must say, I did. But you know, it's interesting. You you don't need a lot of stuff. Sure. You really don't. What you need is the stuff that makes that stuff look different. That's what you need. You know what I what I loved. You said it on QVC years ago. You, you said I can take a, I can take a simple black turtleneck and a and a, right. a, a some kind of skirt right. and wear it every day for five different days and just accessorize it differently and you would never know that it's that the same outfit. That is correct. And I and I I defy anyone to say that's not true because I can do that. I I've proven that on many occasions with with naysayers. I've told I've showed them it can be done, but it's true. It can be done. And that's why it's so silly to have so many clothes. Later on in that same episode, my chat with Linda took a pretty serious turn as she got brutally honest and open on the subject of her debilitating depression, which developed after her beloved husband, Frank, died five years ago. You know, you've been very brave and very open about the great losses that you've suffered in the past several years and how those losses have affected you. And, I, you know, I'm wondering, you're a woman who's always been known as a happy, smiling, joyous woman. Right, right. W was it hard for you to come forward and speak openly and frankly yeah. about your depression? Yeah, it was. I, I couldn't understand why they would want me. It's like, I'm really depressed. I don't think you want me to be your spokesperson. Um, I remember the first um, meeting we actually had, which was a phone meeting. Um, I was on a phone, and then there were three or four executives from... Um, from the the pharmaceutical company, and there was somebody else, and then Vivian, and and I and I in the middle of chatting or talking, they asked me to tell what happened. I'd start to cry, and I'd have to say, "Just a minute, just a minute." And I I got off the phone and I said, I, I, "Vivian, I I can't do this. I I I can't I can't go and I can't talk about this. It's just too hard for me." And um, and she said, "Well, I want you to think about it because maybe it's the thing that'll save you." And you know what? She was right. It did save me. By me speaking and talking about it, getting others to talk about their pain, I started to, I don't know, I started to understand it a little more. I understood that 
what had happened, why I suddenly went from being very sad and in, and in a mourning state and had triggered something in myself that made it an illness. Because that's what depression is. It's an illness. It's not, it's not just, oh, gee, I had a bad day or, God, I gained five pounds and look, this dress doesn't fit me. It's a real illness that cripples you and gets its horrifying hands around your throat and just almost chokes the life out of you. And if you and know so, it's an so illness... so few people really understand it. I mean, right, so they don't. People really because it. I come from the background, oh, for God's sakes... Get up. Snap out of it, pull yeah. Your, snap out of it. Pull your, pull your, pull your, what's this, Mabel? What are you eating here? Oh, she's eating a, oh, Christ. She's eating leaves. Okay, let's change this. Sorry, Brandon. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, yeah, pull your bootstraps up and get on with it. Absolutely. What's the matter with you? I wish it were that simple. And I come from that. I come from that, and I'm proud that I come from that. I come from very, very hardworking, simple people who worked hard all their lives and, and you know, raised children and, and took care of their families. And, but that's the school they come from, and that is not anything about what depression is about. It's just not. It, it, that's why it was so strange for me to be depressed was I was the last person on the planet that you would pick as someone depressed. Sure, because I'm you've goofy. always got a smile on your face. You're always I do. happy. You're always you know, I'm out always there. happy. I'm always goofy. I, always, I never look at the negative. I always look at the positive side of life. Always have. I'm just goofy and happy. And suddenly, I wasn't any of that wow. anymore. I didn't know who I was. And I didn't care. That was the thing. See, I... In my life, I've always been so joyful, and suddenly I had no joy. And the thing that I finally understood and recognized was it wasn't because my husband had died. It was because I had done something to my brain, really, you know, in the balance of a human body mm-hmm. that altered my thinking and my, my whole emotional being was affected. So I went from mourning and tragedy and sadness and crying into something that was scary, really scary, really, really scary. And I remember thinking back then, oh, such a dark time for me, thinking about Jerry Anthony. Do you remember Jerry Anthony who played uh, Marco Dane? Oh, sure. On One Life. Remember yeah. him? He was on Another World for a time. Absolutely. He he was also a director, a very gifted guy, really, really great. You know, some people call him the finest actor that's ever been on, yep. on Daytime now, television. No, this was people... a really good actor. And he killed himself a um, few years back. And I remember thinking, how could he do that? Why and would all of he his, do all that? of his friends were just flabbergasted by it. Because, flabbergasted. You know, he was the he, last person, yeah. just like you, he was the last person yeah. you would expect. That anyone would expect that. Absolutely. And after I went through this illness and grappled with it and tried everything I knew and everything that I was told to do and did it and really spoke out about it, and I, I apologized to him one night. I'll never forget it. I was sitting in my, my apartment here in New York. And I thought about him, and I said, I am so, so sorry. I had, I had no idea back then why you would do such a thing. And now I understand it. Now I get it. Wow. Because the pain is so 
enormous and it's so overwhelming mm-hmm. that you want the pain. It would be like having a really bad toothache and not being able to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. It's like that. And unless you're there, unless you understand that, you don't know. And you can't pull yourself up. It's not about that. So, yes, it was probably, I have said, since I did that campaign, um, it, it's probably the, the single greatest thing I have seen. I'll tell you something. I first fell madly in love with a gorgeous creature named of Nia Peoples some 22 years ago. I was all of 11 years old, and she was the host of a late-night music series called Top of the Pops, which ran for a season on Friday nights on CBS. And I literally lived for that show. Uh, I followed her career with great interest ever since that time. I've watched everything she's ever been in, all the TV shows, all the movies. Anytime I see her name on anything, I'm sitting there with popcorn on the front row. I, am, I, I love her that much. I think she's that amazing. Uh, and when I started this show one year ago, I had this crazy pipe dream of being able to speak with her on it. Uh, I finally worked up the nerve to write her a very effusive letter pleading my case. And to my absolute astonishment, the woman said yes. She said, as I recall, sounds like fun. Fun, it most definitely was. Flash forward one year, and this episode from last February, starring the one and only Nia Peoples, remains the most listened to and most downloaded installment in the history of Brandon's Buzz. It was my 12th episode, and it was very much the one that put my show on the map in terms of people in cyberspace finding it and gravitating toward it. And I'll tell you something, I will forever be grateful to her for so graciously subjecting herself to my mad fanboy frothing. Nia will be making her third appearance on this show later this week. And here in this clip, she went into great detail about the great work she she was doing at the time as Christoph St. John's co-star on The Young and the Restless. And even though I continue to insist that she didn't as much as utter a syllable out of school, some of her comments were violently and unjustifiably misconstrued and or taken flatly out of context, touching off a firestorm on several SOAP message boards. With her permission, I am going to replay those comments in their entirety and kindly ask you to judge for yourself. So let's talk about YNR right quick. You came on that show as kind of a, a smart political operative in a senatorial campaign. Yeah, and, and then, then they you, forgot all about that. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, that's exactly. You you kind of hit it off with Kristoff, and then you moved into a whole other place on the canvas. Right. How did, how did you get that role? Did you did you audition for that, or did you get a? Well, they called. Yes, I did. I went in and read with them just to make sure everything was right. But the, okay. when they first called, I went. It's funny. My agent called me and they said, Mia, they they want you to come in and meet the producers. They're looking for a 23 year old black woman to be the love interest for Kristoff St. John. And I went. uh, 23 and black, no and no. Hey, <laughs> like, I'm nowhere near 23. Um, I could be a 22-year-old's mother, um, and B, I'm not black. So, I, no, I won't go in and meet them if, if that's really what they're looking for and, and tell them no. So they went back and told them what I said, and they said, no, 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 just just bring her in because, we, you know, if, if she's really open to something like that. And so then I, I, I never really cared for soap operas. I just, I don't watch much TV anyway. Yeah. But that format to me just never really interested me. Then I started talking to some people who had done soaps, and I found out what the schedule was like. <laughs> <laughs> that they start taping at about, you know, eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning, and they are out by 5 or 6. Okay. And that because there's such a huge ensemble cast, you usually work a day or a half a day or a day and a half every week. I gotcha. And... 
I had said just that in that season, I had said I don't want to do another nighttime series because I want to move into something else. I mean, moving into my 40s, about, about, about the time I hit 43, I really started looking at what I was doing. You know, the A roles weren't coming my way. I had never broken through and had that huge hit for me personally, mm-hmm. either on television or on film. I had been on two huge hit shows, but they were ensemble casts, and yeah. I joined them after they were already hit. Exactly. So it wasn't like I created that. I did not make my specific mark there, and same thing with film. And I love acting. I love singing. I love writing. I love all of that. But it's not, it is not the thing that drives me. So I, I really, in this time in my life, and I think it has to do with being a woman in her 40s, you just feel like you would become so much more than you could put a label on. And you want to satisfy whatever that is, and the first thing you have to do is define what it is. And so I had said very specifically, I do not want to spend 12, 15 hours a day on a set because there's something more important going on in my life that I need exactly. to discover. And so when I heard about the schedule, I went, well, that might be a good thing. <laughs> and you know what? It was awesome. It, I, I mean, it's a trade-off. It's a real trade-off. Because let's, let's put it this way. When you shoot a film, you'll shoot three or four pages a day. Yeah. When you shoot a TV series, eight nine pages a day that's really humping okay. my first day on young and the restless we shot 103 pages 103 pages and how many retakes did you get <laughs> none and that's that is my thing i don't know i go in you take it and it's done it, it takes them like 10 minutes a scene and i'm used i remember walking in and going what are they doing because you know when you shoot a when you shoot on film <clears throat> or when you shoot a film or a nighttime series Basically, the way it goes is they call you in for rehearsal. <clears throat> you get onto the set, and they say, let the actors have the set. The actors take the set with the director. They work through what's going to happen. You know, they, they, they rehearse it, and then they see what the set is. They see what the props are. They figure out what's going to work for them. The DP watches. The directors watch. Then the cast goes away, and they design their shots okay. according to what we've set. And then they light it. And it's, <laughs> it's a long, <laughs> long process before you ever actually get to shoot that scene. <laughs> but here, you walk on, and you're, you've got three or four cameras running at the same time. And so the cameras are choreographed. The director has already di- choreographed where you're stepping. You don't get a rehearsal. They say, okay, Nia, you walk in the door on this line. When you say this line, you turn and face left. And then when it comes to this line, you're on camera four. And you're like, what? So there's no freedom as an actor to really work the scene out to the best of its ability. But... The, the upside to that is it's like a boot camp for acting mm-hmm. because what you learn to do is throw out anything that you've learned and be real. You have to be so in the moment. And when you train for acting, that's really, you know, it's living truthfully under imaginary circumstances. Exactly. So one of the other things that I can't do as a soap actor is really ask a lot of questions because they, they write so much material that a lot of times if you if you ask too many questions that go too deep, you're going to find conflicts. And then it's really difficult for you as an actor. If you know something that you're saying isn't true, you have to find a way to make it true. <laughs> and so you know, the practice is I'm just going to take what they're telling me and I'm going to believe it. You hit your mark and you make it as real as you can. The wonderful thing about working with Christoph is that he listens to me and he's good on his feet. I mean, he comes in and he's not prepared a lot. <laughs> so. He won't remember dialogue, and he'll mess that up sometimes. But I really push 
him to listen to me, and he listens, and so he can respond appropriately. And that is the other half of it right there. So when I get a scene with an actor who's not really listening to me, it can be problematic. <laughs> it really can. I mean, I had a scene with someone a couple of weeks ago, and it was dramatic. And I, I mean, I was, I had already come to a place where I was livid and ready to rip her heart out. And, <laughs> and so I, my lips were quivering, and I was, I mean, had there not been a table between us, she would have, probably would have been taken down to the floor. <clears throat> and she didn't have very much to say in the scene, so she could remember kind of what it was, but she wasn't receiving what I was saying or what I was feeling. And so the, the director actually stopped it, and the producer chimed in over the, the intercom and said, look, you you gotta, you, you got to get in the scene here because this is a really dramatic scene. You might not have a lot to say, mm-hmm. but you can't be reacting that way because you're acting like nothing's going on, and there's all this going on on the other side. And so then they let the, they did it again, and they let the scene continue on. And the more I drilled her, the more I drilled her, I drilled her, drilled her, drilled her, drilled her, she was forced to listen to me. And then she was so caught up in it and drawn into what I was saying to her that she couldn't remember what she had to say. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, all right, just go again, go again, three, four times. Okay, great, let's go, go now. <laughs> so the great thing about Christoph, like I said, is that he listens and he can go with it right now because there have been a handful of scenes where I've had to walk in and just cry. And I don't rehearse that anymore. There used to be a time when I was younger and just kind of working my craft where I'd have to set this whole thing up and I, you know, you do your backstory and, and do an as if and what am I going to do to bring myself to tears here? What does this really mean to me? But I've gotten now to where all I have to do is listen. If I already know what that guy means to me or what this subject means to me, mm-hmm. all I have to do is be empty. And when I sit there, the words push me in the direction, and then it happens. So it's 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 grown into an entirely different thing for me. So Christoph goes with me with that. He doesn't he doesn't make me rehearse it because to me I could over rehearse it and then I'm just push I'm not, I'm reaching for something I don't want to reach. I want something real to happen. You know, given the monumental history that he has on that show with another woman. Mm-hmm. How tough was it for you coming in to fill that slot? Well, let's see. I run the risk of bad-mouthing somebody else whom I've never met, and I've never even seen her work. Yeah. The, the, they were very thankful that I was there, and that's all I can say. Okay. They were really thankful and open. I think that they were happy with her work. I don't think that they... They gelled the way that they worked, and it wasn't really just Kristoff. I okay. think there were some set issues. Um, I don't know. I wasn't there, but yeah. um, you know. I but I mean, just just in terms of, of fan response, uh, was there any kind of? Did you I feel any kind of pressure on you to? No, okay. no, because I, I don't ever measure anything like that. I'm me. Okay. You have to remember, you're talking to someone who doesn't sit in anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> My last name is Scottish. This is a Scottish last name, and I can't play Scottish. There's, I, I'm not really Mexican. I'm not really, I mean, I am Spanish, but I can't play Spanish. I can't play Asian. I can't play Italian. I mean, I, I can't play any of those, and I can play all of them. So if I had to try and fill somebody else's shoes, yeah. if I ever had that mentality, I never would succeed. I can only be me and be the best of who I am. And And I think that's part of what helps me sustain and be kind of normal in this business. So are you are you enjoying seeing Karen's kind of feistier, more conniving side start to emerge slowly? Oh gosh, yes. 
you know, for the first year and a half, all Karen was was a prop for Neil. And, and that really what happened was the executive producers wanted to – Lynn Lathan was, was executive producing at, yes. the, at the time. And she wanted to bring a love interest in for Christoph. And then once she hired me and signed the deal, she realized, oh, it's too soon. His character can't have a love interest. Oh, God. we got to do something else. Okay, we'll do this. And that's how I ended up the political savvy chick that I was. I got you. <laughs> and then it started rolling over into Christoph. And then the writer strike happened, and Lynn left. She was striking. So another producer stepped up, and he sort of started filling in, and then I started singing in the club. And then he got ousted, and some other producers came in, and then I wasn't singing in the club anymore. I mean, just all over the place. And actually, this is a really funny story, too. The new producers who came in tried to let me go. <laughs> and this is, this is really funny, because I've never done anything like this before. But... Uh, the, the way that contracts work in soap operas, which is crazy to me, because uh, like I said, I've, I've, I've been in nighttime. I, oh. I, I get In nighttime, you get pay or play. So that means if you sign on to a series, and it's pay or play, baby. So if you want to cut me loose after the second episode, you've got to pay me out for the rest of it. You have to be that committed to me. Mm-hmm. But here, you sign a three-year deal, but they have the right to let you go every 26 weeks. It automatically rolls into to the next 26 weeks unless they tell you six weeks prior to the end of that cycle. And so I got <laughs> I got a call after the new producers came in, and they said, look, we, we, we're, we're not going to pick up your option. And it has nothing to do with you. And I just went, you know, they said, you're a fantastic actress, and it's wonderful, but it's just we're going to take the storyline in a different way. And I just, well, thanks for telling me that, but I got 25 years of doing what I do to know that I'm good enough for this. I yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> But, okay. And then I looked at my contract, and I realized that they had just already rolled into the next 26 weeks. And I called my agent. I said, they can't let me go. <laughs> and I wasn't ready to go yet, personally. I mean, I took the job for personal reasons. Uh huh. And they had to keep me on wow. for another 26 weeks. And then that's when the role started getting good, because they were forced to write me into the, to the Tyra Anna lineup. And it, it's much more interesting than if they had just let Absolutely me go. Absolutely it is. Don't you think in real life that you would have already kicked that annoying Tyra's ass right the hell out of Genoa City and be done with it already? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, to tell you the truth, I, I, I would have, well, I guess they eventually, see, I did leave Neil, but not soon enough. I, I would never would have put up with his mess with Drew. <laughs> Take the freaking picture down, dude, and get rid of the wedding ring. Call me when you're done. Nia and Karen had some real conflict going on there. <laughs> Nia never would have put up with any of that. So it was just, uh, okay, I really had to find, like I said, it's all about finding the truth. I had to find a truth in there. And I think with the Tyra thing, the, the way that I justify that in myself is that Karen now really is invested in a family Yes. because Anna is involved. In her mind, for some reason, she can't come up with other options, which Nia has done a thousand times. But for some reason, Karen can't come up with other options. She's she's just hell-bent on having Anna as her daughter and making Neil and Anna and her a happy family. And so the the thought of kicking Tyra out of there means losing Anna. Yeah. And so there's it's very it's much more complicated now. How are you guys enjoying the Paul Roush experience? You know what? Well, tell me what you know about Paul. Well, uh, you know, I I followed one one likes to live as my favorite show. 
my favorite soap. And so mm-hmm. I, I started watching that show when he was producing it, and I've always kind of followed him. And he has a reputation for being very intimidating. Maybe dictatorial is not quite the right word, but always smoking a cigar, <laughs> yes. rules with an iron hand, you know. It's, yes. So I'm just kind of wondering if, if he's actually yes. a teddy bear in real life or... or if... No, he is not a teddy bear in real life. But <laughs> let me tell you something. The show needed him. You bet. Because we were all over the place. Mm-hmm. And there is this weird thing, and I don't, I just don't understand this, but there is a lack of communication between the creative powers that be and, and what they call talent, meaning the actors. Okay. They don't like to talk to each other. I can pick up the phone and call Maria Bell and say, what's happening with the character? It's going to help me know where you're trying to take her so I can help make choices that push that further, and she won't return my phone calls. I mean, it's weird. Like, will somebody talk to me here? What's going on? <laughs> and it was everything was secretive, and you know, people were getting let go, and nobody would say anything, or they were trying to do this and trying to do that without giving information. Uh-huh. When Paul came on board, he really tightened it up, and it's look. Budgets are being cut everywhere. That means we've got to tighten our belts. That means if everybody wants to keep their jobs, then we've got to get out of here on time. That means, actors, you've got to have your poop in a scoop when you show up here. That mean, you know, so, yeah, it's with, a, with an iron fist, but he's smart. He knows what he's doing. Absolutely. And things have really clicked along much better. And also, he doesn't let crap go by. So where, where someone might just wander through these scenes and, in Neil's storyline, there's so many people. I mean, you've got both the kids, and you've got Tyra, and you've got Anna, and you've got me, and then you've got the aunt, and, and you've got the music. and It's just like, what? It's just hordes of people in a room at one time. Plus he has a job, and you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. I have a job, but I haven't figured out what it is yet. And uh, <laughs> I specifically asked, and no one can tell me. Um, so... You know, we, we, it's really easy when you have that many people in a scene to just let it fall apart, both when they're staging it and when you're shooting it. And it's, re- it's real hard to keep people driving toward what they're driving toward. And, and Paul makes us do it. He won't let us get away with it. He'll say, guys, 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 this is an important scene. Look, Devon, this is what's happening to you. This is your scene. Drive it. And he'll say that. He's never had to say that to me. <laughs> Because I feel that way. There's a bit mm-hmm. of me that is a producer and a director, and I'm just a storyteller, and I can't stand it when stuff falls apart like that. Get Absolutely. in the game or get off the stage. Absolutely. We're wasting everybody's time. And, I mean, he's, and these days, literally, time is money. Absolutely. Time is, is way more money than it, yeah, <laughs> because there is less money. Absolutely. Yes. Everybody, everybody's feeling the crunch. So he, I'm, oh. I'm really glad that, that he's on the show, and he's been, he's real... He's real matter of fact. I mean, he's a, he is like he is like a Hollywood producer in some ways, but old time in that he knows the craft. Mm-hmm. You know, the new school of Hollywood producers, a lot of them, they've never even set their foot on a set. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're talking about, but they're going to make decisions. And they have no idea the domino effect that it creates. But Paul knows what he's talking about. I mean, I had um, scenes, which one was it? I've only had, I would say I've had a handful of really good scenes beginning with the scene that they tried to write me out on when I said goodbye and went to New York. <laughs> that was the first good scene I ever had. <laughs> oh, and the funny thing was, the funny when they let me go the week before, they said, well, we, well, we want to keep you on as a recurring role. 
we're not going to write you out of the city or anything. And sure enough, all of a sudden, boom, suddenly there's a script. Mia, you've got to work tomorrow. And I read the scene. I go, oh, hello, I'm moving to New York. <laughs> Liars. Like, why do you have to lie? What do you think, I'm not going to show up or something? <laughs> so so um, when I, it was the scene where I had, I had to tell Neil that I couldn't have children. And when I finished, Paul comes out of the booth. And the way that it's set up is the powers that be are not on, on the set. They're in a booth watching everything on screen. And then you hear this voice come over <laughs> come over the intercom. And he walked out of the booth and came over and just pat me on the back. And he said, great job. That's it. You know, and he's told me, you know, when we've had difficulties with certain things, he'll talk to me. And, and he he listens to everything that I say because he, he, he knows. He said, Nia, you know, you're the most professional person on this set, and you elevate everybody else's work. Wow. You know what you're doing, and we really appreciate that. And so, you know, if you know what you're doing, he's going to – you've got his ear. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm glad su- that he's there. He suffers no fools, I understand. No. No, no, no. <laughs> if you don't know what you're doing, he's, he's going to call you out. Exactly. So you better know what you're doing, and you better be prepared. You know, last September, a few months after she was let go from YNR, Nia returned to Brandon's Buzz – to promote a TV movie, and I asked her at that time to reflect on her time in Genoa City. And as in her original appearance, she was remarkably candid and honest with her feelings and opinions. So considering the kind of ridiculous online firestorm that erupted the last time we chatted about this, I totally understand if you don't want to say much about it, but I just want to know if you're kind of at peace with the way things worked out at Young and the Restless. You know, I... Oh, am I at peace? I feel sorry for them over there right now. I'm, you know, because I have friends over there. Mm-hmm. So I go over there and get my hair done and say hi to everybody. <laughs> I do. I, go, I use it as an excuse to go visit everybody over there, and I bring a big basket of food and say hi. And I'm just there have been so many shakeups over there. It's shakeups all over the daytime landscape, not just a year in the rest but I mean, oh, you know, no. guiding lights going off the air next week after 72 years. That's unbelievable. That that to me is really sad. And I, I wish. I think if there were. I've always believed in communication, but then I've never run a soap opera. You know, I've never run a big company like that, so it's all talk just coming from an actor. Mm-hmm. But if if I were heading that stuff up and, and the inevitable was coming down the pike, I would I would be open about it. And, I mean, these are people that have been on the show for 25, 30 years. Yeah, and longer. Yeah, yeah. So that's the communica- the lack of communication over there is what I hear mostly people complaining about. They don't really know what's going on. Yeah. So, and that's sad because they've been such a part of a of a big thing for so long. But yeah, oh, am I at peace? <laughs> I don't think I ever resolved any of that. I, we just kind of got blasted, and I went, oh, okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh well. No, oh. it it just it, it kind of seemed to me from some of the things you said, and and from the way you said some of the things you said, that you really liked having that job, and you really liked that job. And I would imagine it was it was sad and and a little stunning to see it come to such a sudden end. No, you know what? There are parts of it for me that I really liked and parts that I didn't like, for sure. The fans are an, that's an amazing group of fans. The fans of, the soap opera fans are amazing yeah. fans. I've never known fans to know as much about a show <laughs> as soap opera fans. I'm telling you, they knew way more than I knew, yeah. not just about storyline, but about who was running the show, who was writing what episode, who came in when. They know all about that. <laughs> and that dedic- that takes a lot of dedication, and that really blew my mind. So that was a that was a really interesting aspect. In fact, I would love to. I just picked up Reader's Digest, and I thought, you know what? I'd like to write a column for Reader's for not for Reader's Digest for, for Soap Opera Digest, just about celebrities. I would just like to write a column for them. 
know, call it Celebrity Bites. <laughs> <laughs> that was a that was a tough show for me. So talk talk a little bit about the downside then. If, I mean, you know, don't don't um, get yourself in trouble, but. Well, I don't care. I'm just being honest. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'm not. I don't. I'm not going to put anybody down. I, I have a lot of respect for for what people do, and I'll try to. You know, I just try to call things that they're my experiences, and other people might have experienced it differently. Mm-hmm. The downside to it was that for me, my character was never really developed. I, you know, Absolutely. I went through three executive producers in a span of two years, and no one was ever committed to making anything of my character. So I just kind of walked around as a something on Neil's arm. And that's really boring to me. It wasn't until the last year when they were forced to keep me on mm-hmm. that they actually wrote something for me. <laughs> um, and that was interesting because that gave me something to sink my teeth into. It was also a challenge in that there were so many pages that we had to do in a day and so much dialogue. That was that's, that's truly the stunning thing. I mean, you guys, you guys did and do. We're talking about you know two and a quarter movies a week. I mean, oh, yeah. the, the equivalent of, it's it's stunning. No, no, I know. And in regular you know, TV, it takes seven working days to accomplish what we accomplish in one day. One day. Yeah, in less than one day, because we'll, <laughs> we'll sometimes do five, day, five shows in four days. Uh-huh. You know, and I loved the people. It was an interesting group of people that, that actually worked on the set that I would see day to day. I loved that. And the downside for the people that I worked with is that I had no communication with the people upstairs. But they were in tumult. You know, they, mm-hmm. it was a very tumultuous time. So, mm-hmm. you know, the stupid thing to me is, if they had written material for you all throughout your run, that was as strong and dynamic as your last few episodes were, you'd be the yeah. damn star of the show right now. Well, I don't. It, it was an interesting thing because I can't. You know, I would talk to Christoph about it or other other people on the show about it, and they they couldn't figure out what they were doing with the storylines or why. Like, what were they measuring? Any other show that I've done, for instance, when I would come on to uh, an ensemble cast. They would write it a certain way, and then they would sit back and they would watch how the various characters emerged. Uh-huh. And they would watch how the, the audiences responded to those characters, and they would adjust accordingly. Uh-huh. Whether that meant, meant diminishing a character or pulling a character out more, they would sit back and watch what was happening. But I, it really felt like nobody was watching what was happening. We're like, why are they writing this? Like they were writing in a bubble. Just I just want to write this because I'm, I feel like it without paying attention to how the audiences were responding or how the characters were responding to each other. Is it just that there's no time to, to, to do that? I mean, you know, when you think about, as we said, you know, you have, you have one day to do this. and so. Well, no, no, you have one day to perform it, but they're writing it weeks in advance. I'm sorry, that's my crazy phone. Um, they're writing it weeks in advance. So they have a storyline kind of, kind of sketched out already, but they can turn those storylines on a dime. Yeah. I mean, they did it for me when, you know, they thought they were letting me go for 10 weeks and then all of a sudden they realized they couldn't. <laughs> wow. Okay. We have a storyline. <laughs> so they should be able to respond that way on the positive side, you know, to where they're actually paying attention to what audience are saying, how the fans are responding, and they're looking at it, watching it to see where the chemistry is happening. But all of us were kind of convinced that there was really none of that going on. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Maybe they were paying attention and maybe the fans hated my character or... Maybe there was no chemistry between me and Christoph, and I was just imagining it. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea how that worked up there. I don't know. Very strange. You know, I just I think that I think that a big part of it is they're 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 terrified about keeping their jobs, and they're terrified about you know going off the air. And so the whole goal right now is just to get something on the air, just get an hour worth of product on the air. 
I don't know. I have no idea. I've had so many fans come up to me lately and just say, "Man, the show is going south. What's going on here?" But the numbers don't reflect that. Like if you look at the numbers, the numbers, Young and the Restless is still on the top of the pile. Mm-hmm. But the the fans that talk to me, that they come out of the word work and, and say something to me, they're going, "What's going on?" And they're going crazy on that show. I don't know. I don't watch it. So <laughs> I've never actually seen it. So. Well, you know, I, I was going to say, I don't know if you've kept up with the story, but Tyra and Anna have since left town, and it's almost like the whole thing was for nothing. It's it's really, you know, incredible the way it's all shaken out since you left. Wait, they left town? Where'd they go? They, I, You know, I don't know. Tyra and Devon had a fling, a one-night <laughs> thing, and then they confessed all to Neil and left town. With Devon? Uh, no, Devon's still there, but Tyra and Anna have, I think they went to, to visit Aunt Virginia or someone. <laughs> so they didn't <laughs> I mean, it, so it's almost like the whole damn thing was for nothing. It's it's unbelievable yeah. the way it's shaken out. Yeah, I don't know. What are they doing with Neil now? Isn't that horrible? I should pick up the phone and call Kristoff. <laughs> What's happening with your character? <laughs> Neil quit Newman Enterprises, and he went to work for Kay Chancellor as her CEO. Okay. And uh, Lily has gotten, I think, ovarian cancer or uterine cancer, one of the two. Oh, yeah. And so he's kind of, he's kind of hell-bent on keeping Kane and Lily apart because... Cain was deceiving Lily, and it was all a big mess. And so, oh, they're not, did they get married? Uh, they did get married, and then uh, they found out that Cain was not the the uh, the chancellor heir. So, also oh, check him because he ain't got no money. <laughs> we don't need him. So they split up for a while, and then Lily got cancer, and they came back together. But Neil is hell bent on on keeping them apart because he doesn't like Cain anymore. And so that's kind of that's kind of what he's doing right now. Oh boy. Okay. All righty then. Well, <laughs> onward and upward. <laughs> All I know is your last few episodes, you were on fire. And if I had been in a position of power on that set and had seen you acting your ass off on that stage, I wouldn't have let you leave the building. I would have locked the door. I would have yeah. hurled you know, myself they were very the car. I would have made you run over me in order to go. <laughs> the la- I mean, the la- you know, the last few, the last month that I was on there, they were, the people on set were very, very kind to me because they could see how hard I was working. I just never heard anything from the people upstairs because it didn't matter. You know, there's so much more, of course. Even with two hours, I could barely just scratch the surface of the area that Brandon's Buzz has covered in its first year of existence. All I can say is new people are finding this show every single day, and if you are one of those people, I encourage you to delve into this show's archive and catch up on all that you've missed, including this one, there exist 51 episodes of this show, and they can all be found at three places online. Home base for Brandon's Buzz is blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. From there, you can access all 51 episodes of this show, either by playing them directly from the site or by downloading them from the site. Uh, you can also leave comments there. You can send me an email. You can see what's coming up on the show. It truly is mission control for Brandon's Buzz. And again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at brandonsbuzz.com, my blog. At the top of any page at brandonsbuzz.com, you'll see a blue button marked radio. And clicking on that button takes you to a page which contains a complete archive of my show's episodes arranged in descending order by date from newest to oldest. Brandon's Buzz can also be found at iTunes. I am on iTunes, guys, and I just discovered last week that all 50 Brandon's Buzz episodes are back in the music store. For quite a while now, they've only kept the most recent six or seven months' worth of shows on hand. But as of now, as of this minute, they're all available again for downloading. And I'm very excited about that. So if you haven't downloaded them from iTunes, 
I encourage you to uh, go there and get them. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box, scroll down to the podcast section, click on my Puzzle Piece logo, and from there you can download all individual past episodes of my show as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the music store. You know, I, I really can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing from listeners and fans of this show. I love to hear what you all are thinking, and I welcome any and all feedback, positive or negative. I have received so many great letters from literally all parts of the world, and I hope that continues as this show moves into year number two, because honestly, it's hard not to feel as though I'm doing all of this in a vacuum sometimes, only to entertain myself. Uh, there are email links at the two websites I just mentioned, or you can skip all of that and drop me a line directly at buzzbrandon at brandonsbuzz.com. Uh, hopefully that's very easy to remember. Just take Brandon's Buzz and flip it. Buzzbrandon at brandonsbuzz.com. Uh, by all means, drop me a line, drop me a note, drop me a paragraph, drop me whatever you're thinking. I love to hear it. Uh, and I want to give a sincere thank you to the handful of listeners who have reached out to me because of a given episode and with whom I have stayed in consistent contact since. People like John and Patty, people like Anthony, James, Robert, Michael. You know, I treasure your friendship and your support of what I'm trying to do here. And uh, I pray that we're all celebrating the 50th anniversary of Brandon's Buzz together someday. I think nothing would give me greater pleasure. My great pal Joanne Kubasek hosts Stardish Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and I owe her an incredible debt of gratitude for her advice, for her compassion, for her skill at this very job, and for her example. You know, for a year prior to the creation of Brandon's Buzz, I worked with her on Stardish, writing guest intros, doing guest research, co-hosting occasionally. And when I informed her that I was ready, to, that I felt ready to try doing this racket on my own show, uh, she was the first one to leap up and cheer. And even though I've never met her face-to-face, whenever we do talk, be it online or by telephone, I, I truly feel as though she's one of my oldest, dearest friends. And her unwavering support and assistance in all the forms either has taken over the past year have been sorely needed treasures in my life. I adore you, Joanne, and thank you for everything. I also thank the two most important people in my life, my very best friend, Sherry Ann, who never fails to let me know when I've said something inhumanely stupid on this show, and my partner in life, A, whose steadfast support and encouragement he has selflessly given me as I've struggled to get this project airborne have been nothing short of staggering. Even when it has meant taking away a non-trivial chunk of precious time, he'd rather we spent together. Uh, you know, I'll never be able to repay that kindness in full. All I can say is I love you with my entire heart, and I will always appreciate your immense respect and devotion. The people who listen to this show, I am blown away by you all. You know, having come to understand how precious my own time is in the course of making this show, uh, I'm knocked out by the numbers of you who choose to spend a measure of your time listening to whatever oral hijinks are taking place on Brandon's Buzz in any given week. I started that first night, January 14, 2009, with 17 live listeners, 17, for that very first episode. And I'm pleased to report that sometime within the next 10 days, the show is going to notch its 25,000th listener. And, you know, sure, I understand that in an age where 30 million people routinely watch American Idol, 25,000 isn't exactly a barn burner of a number. But, you know, for a technology and an outlet that comparatively very few people still know about or care to find, I very unobjectively believe that to be a remarkable statistic. And I'm deeply grateful for and to all of you who have taken this particular plunge with me. You know, of this program's 50 episodes, not counting the one you're listening to right now, two of them were compilation encores, two of them were pitched to me by various colleagues of mine, 
two were personally set up by Joanne, who I talked about before. Two an episode. The remaining 44 shows came to exist exclusively because I sat down with my computer and wrote a letter, either to an agent or a publicist or a manager or, in several cases, to the potential guest, him or herself. This show takes up an insane amount of my time and energy, I can't even tell you, and over the past year, I have only invited those artists whose creative contributions to the ether I profoundly admire and enjoy. The end result of all that toil and trouble is an archive of 50 shows that I am unequivocally and uniformly proud of. Speaking merely on a level of my personal satisfaction, this show has succeeded on a scale far greater than I could have ever hoped at the start of this journey, and for that success, I thank, finally, and perhaps most importantly, all of the people, all the agents, all the managers, all the publicists, friends, partners, husbands, with whom I have corresponded in pursuit of each episode, and above that, all the guests themselves, for agreeing to sit down with me and allow me to pick their brains about whatever topic leaps into mine. Uh, you know, I like to think that I've learned 100,000 things putting this show together over the past year, but if there's one monumental thing that I've learned, it's that you can't put on a great show in this format unless you have great guests. And it is my measured opinion that I've had the best guests in the past year. And so I thank you, Robert Krimmer, Gordon Thompson, Laura Bonarigo, Mayim Bialik, Michael Brainerd, Aubrey Moore, Joan Van Ark, Gloria Loring, Peggy Scott Adams, Beth Maitland, Lacey J. Dalton, the fabulous Nia Peoples, Anna Eggy, Rayal Andrews, Claire Massey, Courtney and Nellie Justice, Nicholas Walker, Damon L. Jacobs, Louise Schaefer, Michael Bruno, Olita Adams, the great Connie Pasolacqua-Hayman, Marlena Delacroix herself, Michael Fairman, Brenda Russell, Joel Brooks, Terry Garber, Taylor Dane, the magnificent Taylor Dane, uh, Lynn Herring, Nicholas Rodriguez, Pamela K. Long, a riot, a true American treasure, Pam Long, the great Pam Long, Linda Dano, Brett Claywell, the amazing Brett Claywell, Eileen Christen, Jessica Tuck, Linda Etter, Kale Brown, David Fumero, Curtis Steigers, Anthony D. Langford, Eric Martin. You know, I don't mind telling you, I love the hell out of the special intro that I made for this show and played at the very beginning, and I'm going to play it one more time for you now. So I'm going to tell you all once more, thanks for making this the most fun I have ever had. blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz, brandonsbuzz.com, iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, just Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and I swear you'll find me. Hit it, Bob Kramer. Hi, this is Bob Kramer. Uh, Gordon Thompson. Laura Von Rico. Maya Bialik. Michael Brainerd. Yeah, more. Joan Van Ark. Gloria Loring. Peggy Scott Adams. Lacey J. Dalton. Nia Peoples. Anna Aggie. Grail Andrews. Claire Massey from Tammy Show. Courtney. And this is Nally from OneTreeHillWeb.net. Nicholas Walker. Damon L. Jacobs. Louise Schaefer. Michael Bruno. Adams. Connie Pasolacqua Hayman, otherwise known as Marlena Delacroix. Michael Fairman from MichaelFairmanSoaps.com. Brenda Russell. Beth Maitland. Joel Brooks. Harry Garber. Taylor Dane. Lynn Herring. Nicholas Rodriguez. Pamela K. Long. Linda Dano. Brett Claywell. Eileen Kristen. Jessica Tuck. Linda Etter. Kale Brown. Dave Romero. Curtis Steigers. Anthony Langford. Eric Martin. And we're live and kicking. I'm Brandon Buzz. 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 Brandon Buzz.